Universities have perhaps always had a contentious place in society. Who or what are they for? Are they meant to form citizens or workers? What happens when universities turn to a more corporate model, with vice chancellors as de facto CEOs and students as customers? Dr. Nama Carlin joins us in this episode to reflect on these and other questions. She's a sociologist, writer, and lecturer based in Sydney. She's also a casual academic, an experience that raises pressing issues about how universities operate. Universities might still have standing in our culture, politics, and economics, but is there in fact a dissonance between how the university is broadly valued as an institution and how the institution itself values the people within it? Hi, I'm Fatima Misham, and you're on Chatter Square. Stick with us. Dr. Nama Carlin, thanks for joining us on Chatter Square. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, tell us a bit about your own background in academia. Can you give us a brief rundown of the experiences and roles you've had in a university setting? Sure. So I have been working as a casual academic um, since 2015. I have a, I also at this time was doing a PhD um, when I graduated in 2017. So I have quite a few years of experience in academia as a student, but also as an employee and a researcher. So since 2015, I've been employed as a casual academic at a couple of different universities. Um, Mostly right now, I um, work as a casual academic where I convene, lecture and tutor for some key courses My areas of expertise are in sociology and social theory. I teach policy, um, but I've I've taught um, various other courses. So quite a diverse portfolio. Recently um, in Australia, you know, we've had a university, the Australian National University withdraw from negotiations with the Ramsey Centre, and there was such a strong response around it. What do you think? those tensions suggested about what the place universities have, um, you know, in, in, in the country today or how it's perceived and, and who the stakeholders are and all that kind of stuff. Everyone seemed to have an opinion about this decision and I think it exposed, um, you know, our attitudes, not just our attitudes, but perhaps misapprehensions about what universities are meant to do um, for us? I think that's a really interesting question. And the backlash to the to um, ANU's decision was just so fascinating to see unfold. So originally, we can think of the etym- etymology of what a university is. And it essentially refers to um, this, you know, kind of uh, a sense of a whole. So the Latin of, of comes from uni, which is unity or to be one. So universities are the whole. And universities were seen as these uh, people associated into one body, this community. Um, but they've changed today for various reasons. One of the reasons that how we perceive universities in society today in Australia, but also over 
we see this as a global pattern is that um, issues around funding to universities effectively mean that their function and uh, and stakeholders are changing. So with the with the Ramsey Center, uh, one of the issues was that the in the center itself wanted to have some say about the function of the university itself. So they wanted to have uh, people from the center sit in classes and you know conduct this is the quote health checks on on what materials were taught. So basically kind of taking away the autonomy of the university, which means that an external group gets to monitor and that it that goes against what the university sets out to do. It's meant to be this independent public body, um, which is not meant to be influenced by corporations, organizations. So it differs from grant funding because grant funding, some people might say, oh, that gets to influence what a university does, but that kind of funding actually allows academics to conduct their own research. It isn't contingent on the outcome of the research. It, it funds it. So in today's society, especially as we see um, funding cuts to universities in Australia, to higher education, universities need to adopt a model where they're commercially commercially viable. They're actually commercially competitive entities. So it's this marketization of a university. They need to adopt things like, you know, deliverable outcomes and increased profits. And this has quite an impact uh, on the kind of education students are getting and the quality of education. So universities today differ from what they, I believe universities are meant to be in that today they're primarily defined by their capacity to meet market criteria. So essentially students become customers or service users. Um, Profits are paramount, and uh, and I don't think that that's the right way to see students. And I don't think students necessarily see themselves as service users um, or customers. With this whole budgeting issues and funding cuts, universities are cutting faculties, cutting schools, um, cutting staff. Campuses are campuses are closing. Um, semesters are changing to trimesters. All these things always to increase profit. And, and and which is which is a really interesting landscape for higher education. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Just in terms of um, you know, you're pointing out how funding cuts have changed the way um, universities operate, and really it's about withdrawal from the state. Oh, sorry, the the, the st- a state a state withdrawal mm-hmm. from the university system, which is and a I public find it it's a public institution. Universities yeah, are public; right. they're not for profit. So it's 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 a withdraw withdrawal. Um, universities are being marketized, and I think mm-hmm. you know when you turn what they provide as products, um, yes, everyone feels like they can have a say about what those products should look like and how much they should cost and who can pay for that cost. And it feels like we don't actually hear about what universities themselves want to do or whether they even have a space to envision. Um, the role? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, well, I think that we have a situation where there's this big disparity. So you have VCs earning an incredible uh, income. So I think one of the universities in Australia has, you know, some of the highest paid, you know, vice chancellors 
in mm. in the world. But so yeah, like CEOs, um, right? Absolutely, and the decisions that decisions that they make, one could argue, aren't necessarily based on quality of education, but on how fast they can get students to graduate um, and how many students they can fit in, um, which is also what we'll, I, when we'll talk about this, I hope, in more detail further on, but the cas- casualization of academics um, and the sort of people that are actually doing the teaching, it kind of, it can compromise the quality of education. So it has a lot of implications also for the next informed generation of, of citizens in Australia. So who are they learning from? It's, it's this kind of double-edged sword where um, government cuts funding from universities. And so universities need to seek other sources of funding and, or, and, and profit, increase profits. And many of that means that students are being, uh, student, the student education is compromised as well as research. Universities invest more in research and less on actual education. So very, very interesting uh, shifting landscape of how we see universities and the roles that they have in society. So, you know, I think that um, universities tend to market themselves and advertise themselves. So this is part of the market, them, them becoming part of the sort of free market when they're meant to be public resources, not-for-profit kind of services. Mm. Um, so it's a very interesting dynamic that we have here. It's, you know, that there's an analogy, I suppose, even in, in lower levels of, of schooling. Um, it's going back to the assembly line kind of, you know, that, that model consistent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, universities just became, becoming an assembly line of graduates. Yes. Um, widget. Um, and I personally find that interesting and a bit dismal, really, because my experience of university um, in Manila, um, there was, you know, I went to a Jesuit university and in the phrase Kura personality, sorry, Kura personalis, I think, care of the whole person was such a big deal. The mm-hmm. attitude on campus was that students weren't just there um, to get a degree. You know, they were being molded to yeah. be citizens. Um, and that's yeah. our sort of conversation we tend to have around what universities do. Like, it's just churning out um, workers, really. We're not, you know, it's like the, the idea of, of producing workers versus producing citizens, um, I suppose, really is probably worth revisiting, don't you think? So I think this is a really interesting point and something that I like to tell my students. So there's a sense that you, today universities are about learning a, vo- a vocation, right? So they're about getting a profession and, and all those things. But we tend to think of vocation narrowly as a job or profession. But again, vocation literally means a calling, right? Of to, of, from, that's the etymology, being called. And there's something greater than having a profession, it's about exploration of truth and knowledge. Um, they you, you go to university at a period, period of your life where you're just learning who you are and what your interests are. And, um, and it, universities tend to forget that they're also about cultivating curiosity, which is something I really value and try and do with my students when I teach is make sure that they know, you know, 
what we're doing now, while, while, you know, social theory to them might seem this totally abstract thing, it applies to their everyday life because it's about giving them the tools to expand on the curiosity and questioning. And um, rather than just leaving university with a profession, for me, for my students, what I like to do is have them leave university um, or leave my classes and know that there are different ways of seeing and understanding and being in the world. And that that is entirely more meaningful than, um, you know, just getting grades. But because universities have become this sort of revolving door kind of, um, you know, system, students are placing more emphasis on their grades rather than on the process of learning. And because universities are now cutting down on the length of semesters, that means that students have less time actually to be engaged in the classroom. They experience more pressure uh, because of the increasing costs of accommodation and and the fact that they actually need to pay off their debts. Many students work incredible hours. So they they juggle, some of them juggle almost full-time work with full-time study. And it's out of necessity. They don't want to do this. I mean, when I was in university, I had to do the same but it's becoming increasingly more difficult to be a student and to actually sit with your materials, sit with with the knowledge, debate and engage when you just want to do good on your essay, get your grades and get out of there because that's also what society or government or funding bodies tell universities that that's their job and telling students that that's, that's what they need to do. Yeah, and you never get that time back, don't you? Like the, that period in your life where um, you're at university um, or even just broadly in tertiary um, education, you'll never get that time back. And you might nope. get the skills or the certificate or diploma that might make you, that might qualify you for a job. But there's so much more to life than having a job. Students miss out when they are only seen as consumers, when they're only seen as being on a conveyor belt um, of graduates. Absolutely. And that's something really important that I try and, and emphasize to my students is to ensure that they are able to um, create a community around themselves where, you know, some of the some of my key advice to them is you know, go and do your readings with other students, debate, engage, you know, whatever setting it is, um, question what what you're being told. Um, so it's an experience. I mean, for me, when I was in my undergraduate, it was one of the most profound, some of the most profound years of my life. And really what inspired me or or to, to go and be an academic, to go and be a teacher. I, I had a, a lecturer for three years who absolutely changed my my life. And so it's this desire to give back and, and influence and shape. But I see uh, we, as the years progressed, and I've been teaching for a while, and when I say I've been teaching since 2015, it's a minimum of, you know, two courses a semester. So it's quite a heavy workload. I, I range between, you know, sometimes I have 100 to 200 students mm, um, so a semester. Many. Yeah. So, so I see, I see them and I see how, how they change. And through the years, there's been a lot of pressure on them to just, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say to the, their capacity to even engage with content, con- content is being really challenged by their other obligations. And of course, because universities and I'm moving to models of, um, you know, that 
online lectures and online stuff, which is incredibly valuable for students who can't attend face-to-face -face classes. But there's also something about being in a classroom, being in a lecture theater, where you're able to debate with other students and hear other opinions that is so meaningful and life-changing. Uh, and I, I just, uh, for me as, as a lecturer, um, as someone who loves teaching, it's, it's, a, it's, I get a vocation of mine from a vocation as a calling rather than a profession. Um, it's, it's sad to see the changes that uh, universities are making um, because it compromises a lot of, of what, of the quality and the nature of what students get out of it. I find it interesting, um, just when I think about um, some of the elements of, of, of when universities started, um, you know, it came out of like monastic traditions, mm -hmm. you know, because monks and clerics, they had all the time in the world. So they were mm -hmm. actually the first people who made, um, you know, so who set up systematic studies of, of nature or, you know, things like that. So these these were people who had the time and also they were their work was underwritten, you know, they would might have had um, royal patrons, like the, I think the early, early forms of universities had royal patrons. Sometimes um, the Catholic Church also set up um, universities um, as well. So there was this yeah. sense that I, sp I, I suppose, and I would imagine that that provided a more liberating, you know, um, space for um, you know, for building knowledge, you know, um, gaining knowledge for its own sake, because, you know, there's no commercial, may, uh, there probably were commercial imperatives, and certainly as nation states competed with each other um, in pursuit of scientific innovation, you know, in things like, in things like navigation or um, medicine, um, you know, the universities were the place for, for competition between nation states. Um, there's a lot of research going on. But I think on the whole, it seems to me that there was a lot more freedom to just pursue yeah. knowledge for its own sake than what we yeah. have today. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, the, the goal of, of university is discovery. It's pursuit of knowledge. And importantly, it's dissemination of knowledge. So universities don't just engage for in research for research's sake. You have to have people there to engage with it. And it's true that, you know, I think that the, the model universities worked on for so long was this um, sort of like a uh, mentorship model where people come in and they, they study and stay in these institutions for a long time. Probably what what gives people uh, this notion that universities are like academics, like sit in, in their ivory towers because they're so disengaged from the public when, uh, you know, they couldn't be anything further than the truth, I feel. And um, when we get to it further on with casual academics, you know, you can't really be sitting in an ivory tower when you're barely making an income. Uh, um, so, so, this this origin of university as a place to sit and you know like mull, mull over things is is really changing. I mean, we have this um, we see this with PhDs where we have this uh, this um, quick kind of model where students get in to do a PhD, researchers, and they have to leave after you know x amount of years, right? So 
your APA or government funding runs out after three or three and a half years. And but that means that after that point, you know, universities don't actually get funding for the students anymore, for the researchers. And so they kind of start being pushed out. Um, in places like in the U.S., you can, you can still do your Ph.D. for 10 years. Your funding continues as long as you finish. But in Australia, you know, as soon as your funding runs out, universities start pushing you out. And that can compromise also the quality of the research. If you, and, of course, if you choose to stay on longer, that's bad for their statistics because it shows that their students aren't, researchers aren't graduating quickly enough. And so that might impact any funding that they get. So, um, it's Those just, seem very arbitrary measures to me. <laughs> well, I, I really they're subject to change, you know. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that if we want quality research, we need to invest in researchers, but also in in teachers. So some of the purposes of universities is for students to actually learn from those who are doing the research. But um, because the uh, the actual teachers or those who are who face students um, every day are casual academics. Some of them are PhD students. That means students aren't learning from the experts or researchers in the field. They're learning from people who haven't had uh, sufficient training or, or, you know, students themselves, which is, which is really interesting. So universities really, they, they, serve, they do serve a public role. They act as, as critics. They, their purpose is to advance knowledge and advance truth and also extend that knowledge. So it's not just about those who exist, the academics and the researchers. You need to have a cohort of students. But as you shift that language from a student to a consumer, the nature of that relationship changes. So the fact that teachers and researchers are engaged in, in advancing knowledge um, but it's all they do so not just for research's sake, but for education and and curiosity to cultivate curiosity in their students. So what we see today is that university, as opposed to you know the origin of universities, though they began where they were just places for people to 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 learn and and mull over truths and and qu big questions, they're actually encouraged to leave the public behind. And universities tend to focus on serving their customer or their, their service user, which is the student. And this means having them job ready. But what we see that rates of graduate employment rates have actually decreased over time. So students who graduate universities, uh, you know, over the years, there's rates that statistics show that they actually have less, you know, their, their employment rates don't increase with having a degree, which is really unfortunate. And this is kind of a neoliberal model for university. Um, it means that uh, there's an executive power, right? These are the chancellors, the vice chancellors. Um, budgeting becomes quite significant, uh, but also impacts the university. Which, you know, we talked about how university years are part of some, are, you know, meant to be some of the most memorable years of your life as you're engaged with your colleagues, your your, your fellow students, and debating it. But but because we're putting this pressure on students through this neoliberal model, there's a decline in collegiality, also for staff, but also for students. Um, and in Australia, this really came about under the Howard uh, Coalition government, um, so where universities tend to need to rely on other sources of income 
and uh, and this pressure placed also on universities, but but also on students, changes how you experience the university itself. So it's less about um, sharing experiences or sharing knowledge, and more about just how quickly can you push students out um, over time. So and how you know how many degrees can you show that you've had? You know what are your KPIs? like it's this language that we see in business yeah. entering universities it's a, the premise the premise is that competition makes everything better so universities competing with each other make yep. them better students competing with each other make them better and academics keeping with each other make them better and i think it's worth probably questioning that premise because mm-hmm. you know there are other models of um building knowledge there's collaboration <laughs> Yeah, You know, there's um, providing the conditions that would enable people to make mistakes uh, and learn from those mistakes. Yes, absolutely. But you can't do that under a competitive model. You can't, you don't, you don't want to take risks under a competitive model. So it ends up actually sometimes pushing quality down rather than up or at least, you know, um, inhibiting opportunities for discovery. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's incredibly valid. And um, I think that some of the concerns are is really what is the influence of um, the external stakeholders, the influence of, of businesses in university teaching. Um, so it's, it's just, it's just a, a really interesting dynamic um, that, that we're seeing. Mm. Now, you've mentioned, um, you know, just how much of an impact the casualization of academics um, have on on the quality of teaching and on on student welfare, probably to some degree. Um, what what's your personal experience has like been like? You know, like what what would you what do you think you'd have more time for or would be able to do better if you weren't a casual academic? So some of the issues with casual academia. I mean, casual employment. Uh, is really quite embedded as an employment strategy in universities today. Um, effectively, it's this um, alternative option for universities who want to need to pot, cut expenses because they've been cut their funding, um, and uh, and so they opt for hiring casual staff. So, if uh, if a university can, you know, pay casual conveners to, you know teach a couple of semesters, it pretty much, instead of hiring them as permanent or full-time staff, that that at least halves their expenses in terms of hiring. But there are a lot of issues here. So over uh, 50%, I think it's sometimes 60%, some, some surveys say, of uh, teaching staff um, is casual at universities, which is significant. Um, you know, when, when they began, when casual, uh, casual academics really, uh, became prominent in the 1980s, they were seen mostly as specialists delivering lectures. Um, and so they were bringing kind of knowledge of the industry into the university, but now the majority of the frontline teaching stuff, uh, is done by casual academics. And so this is a change from the previous uh, um, model where academics uh, actually entered as, in junior positions and moved up in the ranks. So some of the issues with casual academia is that 
people might not know this, but casual academics don't don't get benefits like sick leave or annual leave. You only get paid by the hour or for the courses that you teach, um, and you can't really conduct your own research in this time. Or if you do conduct your own research, it's on your own time and unpaid. Um, you can't supervise. Uh, higher degree uh, research students or honor students. And so all these actually impact you from future employment because you aren't skilled up. You're literally just the person who is, I mean, not just the person who's teaching, because teaching is an incredibly important role, but you just, you teach. Um, so no point, no form of paid leave, meaning if you, if you're, you know, have a lecture, but you're sick and you can't show up, then you don't get paid, even though you've prepared for the lecture. Um, you also, in many places, have lack of access to basic facilities. You don't might not have a desk even or a computer. Um, so, and you're also excluded then from the collegiality that we mentioned. So, you you you're not um, you know you're not part of the overall community in your school or in your faculty. You're isolated, and so you also don't participate in influencing any of the workplace decisions that will inevitably impact you because you are the one taking on the workload. Um, you also have high administrative burdens. And uh, many of these casual academics take on basically full-time equivalent roles while not getting paid full-time wage. Unfortunately, um, many casual academics statistically are women. And so because of this, you know, women tend to report higher rates of uh, dependency on another family member or maybe their partner as a main source of income, which has significant implications if women need to leave their their par partner or their family for re various reasons. Um, this has an impact on your super because you can work as a casual academic for years. Um, and so the in your super contributions will also be uh, quite minuscule. Um, and also students don't realize that their teachers are casuals. Students don't understand this and they uh, don't realize that most of the work that their teachers do isn't paid for. Um, you know, you try and limit yourself to the amount of hours allocated in your, in your pay, but inevitably that will extend because you want to deliver a quality learning experience to your students. And so... I think I had calculated at some point that I was working full time um, while, you know, getting paid for, you know, not even half of what I was, the hours I was putting in at some point, which is really sad. But also if I didn't do that work, my students' uh, learning experience would be compromised. And so it's just about trying to do the best that you can for your students. Um, things that, the, the impact that I have uh, that I feel is, um, you know, to prepare lectures can take, you know, uh, at least a day, sometimes a week to prepare a good lecture. Um, and the university I work for actually pays quite well comparatively, but it only pays for four hours of lecture prep for, for a two hour lecture. So that means that if I spend a whole day writing a lecture, I've only got four hours paid of that. Um, and so that means that those hours I can't, uh, I don't spend on doing my own research. So my own research lags. And so my employability uh, in other universities is compromised. So I'm not getting skilled up. It's literally just kind of this band-aid solution to funding issues. And those who experience the brunt of this are 
the teaching staff and students. Hmm. There's a there seems to be um, something fundamentally structurally unjust about that setup, and it strikes me how strongly dissonant it is. So universities still have like this amazing status in society and econ in the economy and in politics, and yet in terms of the people who are actually fronting students, you know, there's this dissonance in terms of whether those people are valued. It's it's a uh, quite an exploitative uh, industry, um, and it's not Australian specific. We see this overboard. I mean. Uh, luckily, Australian universities pay well comparatively to universities in the UK or in the US. There's You have situations in the US where academics are literally homeless. They sleep in their cars because they can't, you know. And so, again, it's this issue where, you know, you teach because it's your vocation, because it's your calling, but yet um, you're meant to teach a vocation as in a profession, and so students don't don't actually realize that the fact that they're being skilled up to enter a workforce, they're doing so by by a team of educators that is sacrificing quite a lot of their their lives in order to get students to that level. Um, there are a lot of issues about who can access education in Australia. I know many universities now have scholarships and extra funding um, to bring students from, you know, marginalized uh, communities or rural or remote places. So there is a shift there. I think universities used to be seen as this kind of uh, uh, elite institutions. Um, it's, um, they do cultivate a method of learning that is different to uh, high schools. I don't think high schools prepare students for university well enough. <laughs> Um, I, um, I think that there's, there, there's no communication there. Um, so students get to university and are quite shocked that they must learn in a different way, right? Learning in terms of, uh, it's not just about, uh, knowing the right answers, but, but being able to justify yourself, you, you justify your reasons, make an argument, um, which is not necessarily what they're, they're used for, you used to. So I mean, I feel that um, there is so much potential for for students and for universities, but again, unless there's the 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 capacity to act for universities to act as public institutions, as not not for profits to target those students who or those who you know should be there, want to be there, um, you know, to help gain knowledge, cultivate curiosity then we're simply functioning as just another um, for-profit industry. And that takes away some of the values of university. I think people are concerned about universities because they, um, you know, knowledge can be quite scary for some people. And they, they worry that, you know, universities might indoctrinate or do all these kind of things that you, things that you saw during the Ramsey um, center debate. Um, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Universities, at least from my experience, are about challenging assumptions and allowing students to come to conclusions for their own conclusions. Um, so I feel that so many people who refer to universities in that way, I would just love to have them sit in one of my sociology classes. I think they would uh, have a lot to, to gain from just uh, trying to 
to challenge their own assumptions about what universities mean and what knowledge means and how we come to and how we come about to knowledge. Mm, that's a really good way of um, actually um, starting to wrap things up because I think ultimately our attitude towards universities is about in a emerges from our attitude to knowledge, absolutely and new knowledge, absolutely and critical thinking. So if as a society, if culturally Australians are skeptical or even cynical about the sort of knowledge generated from universities, then they would be skeptical and cynical about the value of universities. But it's also that not that we perceive knowledge as something that needs to be like uh, monetized, right? So that's that's the whole ridicule of the uh, Bachelor of Arts degree, right? How do you monetize a degree? But these are things that aren't quantifiable. Like how do you monetize being able to, you know, explore or ask questions, know how to read something in terms of really engaging and and finding meaning. These are uh, values that uh, that build on, for, you know, kind of help develop and shape you as a person, as a citizen, um, as a per- contributor to society, part of society. So the fact that we perceive knowledge today is something that we, you know, we need to see uh, actual financial outcomes or profits or all that stuff um, is is sad because it isn't about that. It's about, you know, asking questions, um, cultivating curiosity and sharing knowledge. Mm. Dr. Nama Carlin, thanks so much for being on Chatter Square. Thank you so much really for having me. Really great to chat me. with you. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Chatter Square. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. Please subscribe and tell everyone about us. See you soon. Chatter Square is a production of Eureka Street in Australia. Theme music by Kevin McLeod. 